The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. scripture reading, which is in Philemon. We're going to read the whole book this morning. Don't worry, it's only one chapter. Um, I'm reading out of the ESV, uh, but if you want to read along in whatever version you have in front of you, you can join me. The letter of Paul to Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because of the heart, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner... Receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hands. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Jesus Christ, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Thank you, Julie. I am so excited to get into this book with you guys. Uh, my name is Oshua. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. I have uh, been out of the, the pulpit for about six weeks now because I've been busy with the enjoyment of our new little person in our home. Uh, Emma Ruth uh, was born on the 24th of July, and uh, she's here this morning making her grand debut. So uh, don't stop right now and, and meet her, but afterwards, feel free to, to, to come and see the, the gift that God has given us. And so I've been enjoying uh, paternity leave, which I now understand is a legal right in America um, as a father to 
take time off work to bond with uh, a, a new child and to free up my wife just to, to rest and recover and nurse and, and figure out all the new rhythms and routines. So that's really important in our family, and that's what we've been doing. Um, so that's where I've been, um, and so we are transitioning back into uh, normal kind of vocational life now. So I'm happy uh, and actually really excited uh, to be back. So we're going to be taking two weeks in the book of Philemon, and we're calling the series Subversive Freedom. Okay, Subversive Freedom, the letter to Philemon. And I'm going to do a little background work before we jump in. And if you've been with us for a while, you notice some uh, similarities to the series we did uh, in the book of Ruth. Because in a lot of ways, I think Philemon is like the New Testament uh, book of Ruth. So I'm really excited to jump in. So a little bit of background. Here's what we know about the context of this book, okay? So Philemon is a wealthy Christian. Right? He has a church that's meeting in his home, and he lives in the city of Colossae. And he has a slave named Onesimus, who has wronged him in some way. Maybe uh, Onesimus stole something or did something shameful. Whatever it is, Onesimus is, is a fugitive. He, he flees from Colossae and runs to Rome, probably to, to be in hiding uh, because he fears punishment. And somehow, at this time, right, Paul is in prison in Rome, and somehow they meet um, we don't know if Onesimus specifically sought out Paul to be an intermediary, right, to, to mediate between him and his master, or if just randomly they, they meet and, and Onesimus encounters him. And, and what happens is Paul shares about Jesus with him, and Onesimus becomes a follower of Christ and begins to serve Paul in his imprisonment. And so now, now Paul is... is encouraging Onesimus, hey, you need to return to Philemon. You're a follower of Jesus now. You can't be a fugitive on the run. You need to go back to Philemon and reconcile. And so this is a letter that very likely Onesimus would have carried to Philemon. And it's Paul stepping in and seeking to mediate between these two men. Now, it's important to understand slavery as well in the context of slavery, because we have a certain view of slavery, right, in, uh, in, in America, and it comes from pre-Civil War Southern slavery. And there are both similarities, but actually a lot of differences between the slavery that we, um, that we committed and, and uh, put upon um, African people here in America versus this first century Roman slavery. So, First, Roman slavery was not racially based. It was economic. A person might actually sell themselves willingly into slavery um, for economic prospects. So they would sell themselves into slavery to gain a skill, to gain more status, to get uh, trained for something, knowing that in the future they would be released and then they would have that skill and and as a way to kind of work up the economic ladder. Um, Though at the same time, someone might become a slave because of uh, they were a criminal, they broke the law, and that was their punishment. Um, they, they might be the spoils of war if you were a defeated nation. There might be enslavement there. Um, another thing is that most slaves were freed in their early 30s. And a freed slave was, had equal rights of all other uh, free citizens. And they could have all those same privileges, rights, and, and freeing slaves were such a common practice 
in, those, in the Roman Empire in those days that there were laws limiting how many slaves you could free at one time. Um, because it was just it was a, a part of the, the culture that there would be the service of this slave and then they would be, they would be set free and, and now live their life as a freed person. As well as there's also a slave could own property, a slave could have a bank account, could save up, could invest, and a slave could even own their own slaves. And these slaves filled every strata of society. They were like penal workers, right, working in prisons, and they were the, the poorest of the poor, they were very low. And then there was Caesar's household. And if you were a slave in Caesar's household, you were a person of dignity and honor, and you would represent the, the royal household uh, in your work. So despite these differences, there were still similarities, right? Cruel masters abused their slaves. And it wasn't uncommon for slaves to run away seeking their freedom. It's a helpful quote by Murray Harris in his book, Slave of Christ. And he says this. He says, at the heart of slavery, ancient or modern, are the ideas of total dependence, the forfeiture of autonomy and the sense of belonging wholly to another. His was the frustration not only of powerlessness, but also of relative hopelessness. And so, though there were big differences, don't hear me saying, oh, it was no problem. No, there, were, there was uh, significant, uh, you say, desecrating of the imago Dei, of the image of God in this system of slavery of this day. Now, we're calling this series Subversive Freedom because of the connections to Ruth. And if you were with us during the series of Ruth, you... Uh, you should have a sense of, of, of that book and what it was about. And essentially, it connects in so many ways. And so in Ruth, you have a, a mundane story of a refugee meeting a farmer and essentially falling in love, right? And in the midst of all these big, world-shattering events, it's just a simple story in which God shows up and moves powerfully. In the same way, like, you have Paul's letters, right, of, like, Romans, and there's all these big events happening in his deep theology, and it's, here's just a personal letter helping two men to reconcile. It's a very simple, mundane thing, and yet God shows up in it. And, it, and you have dealing with status, dealing with privilege, right? You have, like in Boaz, in Ruth, you have someone of high status, Stepping in and helping this refugee, this foreigner who has no status and honor in that community. In the same way, you have Paul of high status and honor stepping in and giving a voice to the voiceless. Speaking up for this slave that would not have had the status to speak up for himself. You also see the theme of, of the kinship of God. Okay? Of, of the value of, of the family of God and how it cuts across all the barriers of race ethnicity and class, um, and it just, and it, it calls us to be one in Christ, irregardless of our backgrounds. So I could keep going. There are so many themes and connections. Uh, it's significant. And, and what is so explosive about this book is that it radically takes the gospel and applies it to social issues to the situations of everyday life and how people relate across class, across races. It's, and it, in that way, it's very subversive. And as I've, I'm preparing this, I'm thinking also 
of those who are not yet followers of Christ, uh, who might be here, who might hear me say that this, the Bible and this letter to Philemon radically confronts injustice and oppression. And you might hear that and say, this guy's crazy. Just read your history. The Bible has been used for centuries by those in power to justify oppression, including racism, sexism, and slavery. How can I say that the Bible breaks down class distinctions and subverts injustice? If you know your history. And if you don't feel that that tension, if you've never wrestled with that question, you haven't studied your history. So, I want to answer that question as we get into this book because it, this book assumes slavery. Ask the question, does the Bible promote oppression and injustice? Does it? So, short, like, it's going to do some history work, five minutes or less, and then we're going to jump into the book. And history can be hard to hear. But here goes. This is Robert Louis Dabney. He was a Presbyterian minister and a theologian who lived in the pre-Civil War South. He was strongly pro-slavery. He once wrote this. Every hope of the existence of the church and of state and of civilization itself hangs upon our arduous effort to defeat the doctrine of Negro suffrage. He's saying, this is like the biggest issue that a Christian has to fight against the emancipation of black slaves. This is a so-called Christian pastor and respected theologian whose books are still in print today. Now, lest you think this issue was only a, like pre-Civil War South and us here in a modern day and up here in, in uh, wonderful Portland, Oregon, don't have that, his, that in our history. Look at this picture. If you're in a, uh, listening to the podcast, it's a picture of a Klan gathering in a church in downtown Portland, circa 1920. And there's a big Jesus Save sign in the background. Try not to vomit looking at that picture. And this is from a Klan rule book. In 1960, it says, good Christian white people who believe in racial purity and Protestant morality will save the country from destruction. Oregon had the largest per capita KKK membership west of the Mississippi. If you know the history of our city, we were founded as a white utopia. We weren't a slave state, we were a no blacks welcome state when Oregon was founded. That's our history of progressive Oregon. And that Jesus saves sign, I don't know what church that was in downtown Portland, but what that tells us is is it wasn't a liberal mainline church. It wasn't like, oh yeah, those liberals, they were racist. No, this was probably a conservative evangelical church that hosted this Klan gathering. It is horrific and shameful. 
So was Christianity the problem? These men used the Bible to defend the racism. Is that because the Bible is racist or supports injustice? Let's listen to some other voices. This is Frederick Douglass, the American uh, freed African slave. He had this to say in describing a quote-unquote Christian slave owner. He says this, His religion was a thing altogether apart from his worldly concerns. He knew nothing of it as a holy principle, directing and controlling his daily life, making the latter conform to the requirements of the gospel. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying he could have his theology up here and think about it, and it never applied to his, his politics, to his view of, of social relationships. Douglas goes on to give the sharpest contrast between the, the so-called Christianity of his day with the gospel that he read about in the Bible. Here's what he says. He says, I love the pure peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. So the problem was not that these slaveholders were Christian, The problem is that they were not Christian enough. They had a spiritual view of Christianity, but they had totally ignored the social implications of their faith. One more person I want to quote, because it's the same argument that William Wilberforce used as he fought against the slave trade in the British Parliament. For over 40 years, he fought against the vast majority of, of Parliament and of British culture, that was pro-slavery. And because of his, his fighting against slavery, it was made illegal three days before his death in 1833. And this was 30 years before the Civil War in America. Wilberforce, so he, if you don't know the history, he, he was just a, a rich, kind of well-to-do, high-status uh, Brit born into a wealthy family, and he just like, on a whim, used his spare money to, to run for parliament. And, and he made it in, and he was just, just a total uh, goof-off, right? Yeah, just. And, and then he met Jesus. He came to a solid, foundational, reborn experience and relationship with God. And he thought, okay, i got to step out of parliament. i got to go focus on spiritual things. And this pastor, John Newton, you might know of as the author of the song Amazing Grace, said, no, no, Wilberforce, you... You need to use your, your privilege, your wealth, your, your, your status and to, to see good happen, to, to, to bring about God's work in this world. And so he stayed in Parliament. And this is what he said about his, his work in Parliament. <clears throat> he says, the grand object of my parliamentary existence is the abolition of the slave trade. But this great cause... Before this great cause, all others dwindle in my eyes. I must say that the certainty that I am right here adds greatly to the complacency with which I exert myself in asserting it. Now, you hear complacency, you're like, that doesn't make any sense. So this is Old English, right? 
What he means by complacency is, I don't give a rip what anyone thinks about me. I'm entirely complacent about your opinion of my views. Because he fought against almost everyone who was against him. He says, if it please God to honor me so far, may I be the instrument of stopping such a course of wickedness and cruelty as never before disgraced a Christian country. He's passionate about this. And then one other quote. He says, what a difference it would be if our system of morality were based on the Bible instead of the standards devised by cultural Christians. Do you see that, that, that distinction that he is making there? And we need to make that distinction today, I think, more than ever. Okay? The challenge in our, to us in our day is to not be shaped by cultural Christianity, but by the Bible itself. And if you're a non-believer here this morning, I want to I challenge you not to reject Christ based on the view of him presented in our culture. If you do that, you entirely miss his heart, and you entirely miss the biblical story of redemption. This is the background work I think we need to do in our day to jump into Philemon. So I want to do that. If you haven't found it yet, it's the last of Paul's letters. So it's right before Hebrews in your Bible. And let's, let's turn there. I know history's hard, but God's word is sweet. And so let's dig into it. And we're going to see just, just three ideas, three themes in, um, in the first part of this letter. The value of family and kinship. We're going to see, we're going to learn how how to speak with loving persuasion. And then finally, know the difference between facts, feelings, and commands as we relate to one another. So let's read Philemon 1 through 3. This is how he introduces the letter. He just says, he says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he starts it with the family ties, the family relationship. In our Western culture, what happens when two guys meet? What do they tend to connect on? What's the question they ask each other? What do you do? Or maybe, what's your hobby? What are you interested in? And we do that because we're looking for a connection. I want to know, what do I have in common with this guy? But it's based around our work. It's based on what we do. I grew up in, in uh, Hawaii. And there's this Hawaiian kind of Asian islander culture that I grew up in. And so the first question that we ask in the islands is not what do you do. It's who do you know? Which, whose family are you in? I, I want to know what is my relational connection to you already? Are you an insider to my family or an outsider? So I asked, do you, do you know Uncle Keave? Are you a part of the Kobayashi family? Like, the, these are relational connections that are, are first and primary. It's very similar in the honor-shame cultures that we read about in the Bible. 
And so Paul is beginning establishing these kinship ties. You've got five different times in these three verses he talks about family relationships or their, their, kind of, their fellowship, their shared work in the gospel. So this is radical both in Paul's day and in our day, but for different reasons. In our day, this is radical because it's just totally different than the culture of the millennial playground that we call Portland, Oregon, right? It's just like, again, a little bit of history. If you know the history of Portland, you know that our economy was built around entertaining young, single men, right? You had the loggers, the miners, the sailors, and the pioneers. And especially the, the, the loggers, miners, and sailors, they go off, right, alone for, for months on end, working hard, and then these single guys would be dropped off in downtown Portland with a bunch of money in their pocket and a bunch of free time, right? And so the economies of the entertainment of, of these young men, of the adult industry, of our, our, our brewing industry, all of that was built around the entertainment of, of, of these men. And then you have the pioneer culture, right? I've left family. I've left home, and I'm going to go pursue a new life in the frontiers. Right? That is our culture. And so in contrast, the view of family in the scriptures is one of shared identity and meaning, of shared honor. Right? In this honor-shame culture in the, in the scriptures, you don't have individual honor. Right? Your honor is shared by the honor of your family name. Right? Success in life is bringing honor to that family, to that family name. And so in the West, and in, in the Northwest, when we hear the idea that the church is family, that you are brothers and sisters, you know what? That doesn't have that much meaning for us. Right? I might, I might call my brother every few months. Right? There's not this intricate, interdependent relationship of family. But for Paul, this is a foundational truth that shapes everything that they're about, right? He says, God is our father, in verse 3. That he is our father. We're adopted into his family. We are brothers and sisters. For him, that meant something. Now, it's also radical, though, in that day. Because family was so important, but it it's my family that's important, not yours, right? So in that culture, there was like this, this something called honor challenges. There, there was a competition between the honor of my family and my name and your honor and your name. And so I look out for my family, and, and I don't want to give you honor because that's, that's for you and your family. And Paul is breaking through that, and he's saying, no, no, no. Your honor is not primary. Your name is not primary. When you come into the people of God, God is Father. His honor is primary. Which name are you baptized into? The name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. His name is primary. You now bear His name. And so, so our honor isn't this, this competition between families trying to, to, to work our way to the top. It's saying, no, we have all. We, that we've come to the cross and and our shame is laid down there, and we receive God's honor, and we seek his honor. The message of kinship, that we are family, 
is radical. It is radical for our day and for that day. Second point, as we read on, we're going to see Paul begin to persuade Philemon about receiving Onesimus. And there's so much that we can learn here with how he, how he does this and how he prays. Look in verse 4. He says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your faith and of the, sorry, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So after establishing these family ties, Paul's going to begin to persuade him in love to do what is right. And we learn a lot with the way that Paul speaks these challenging truths to him. So before Paul makes his request, he is going to pray. And he's going to recognize that God is present in this situation. And this is that that connection between the vertical and the horizontal. Your relationship with God has implications for your relationship with, a, with the slave. Okay, and notice how he prays. He doesn't pray, God, I wish you'd open Philemon's eyes to see how wrong he is. Or God, I pray that you'd soften Philemon's heart to receive this hard teaching. No. He begins by thanking God for the love and faith of Philemon. He says, I have heard about your love. It's a public affirmation of his reputation of kindness. See, if you remember, several months months ago, earlier this year, um, I mentioned this book called Practicing Affirmation by Sam Crabtree. It's an amazing book. I highly recommend it. And I defined biblical affirmation this way. I said it's verbally recognizing God's character when it is reflected in the lives of people. Verbally recognizing God's character when it's reflected in the lives of people. Paul's doing that through his, this prayer. He's saying, I'm seeing these beautiful things in your life. He's thanking God. He's glorifying God while affirming Philemon. And then in verse 6, he gives the first challenge. He gives the, this, this first challenge to Philemon. But it's not a confrontation it's a compelling vision for what could be, right? The, the, uh, kind of the key word here is, is translated, the sharing of your faith in the ESV, or if you have the newer NIV, it's, it's partnership with us in verse 6. These are translated from the word koinonia, right? It's, it's usually translated fellowship. You've probably heard of that word before. And this ties in that, that first idea of kinship, And he's praying that the reality of his kinship with the brothers and sisters in the church, he's praying that that reality would be effective for every good work. It's not enough that he knows about that, that he knows that, oh, this person is my brother or sister in Christ. He actually has to see that knowledge become effective for the good work. And then that good work in Philemon, this letter, is about, is that, Good work he's going to challenge him to do in accepting Philemon and forgiving him. But it's presented as a hopeful vision and not a harsh critique. And then in verse 7, 
He's going to affirm him again, and, and you see it, right? I've derived much joy and comfort from your love. And here, here's a, a, a principle from that book, Practicing Affirmation, that we see here. And the principle is this. People are more willing to listen to us when they've experienced the refreshment of affirmation from us. Right? People are more willing to listen to us when they've experienced the refreshment of affirmation from us. He is, through his prayer, gaining a hearing for his words of challenge. Now, some of you are thinking, oh yeah, I know about this. It's called the sandwich approach. Right, right? So I'm going to say something encouraging so I can say then what I really wanted to say, which was a, a criticism, and then, oh yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll affirm my love afterwards. Right? If the only time someone hears something nice from you is when it's followed by a critique or criticism, <laughs> they're not going to hear your affirmation or your critique. Right? Good affirmation is separated from critique. And yet at the same time, we recognize that words of affirmation, words of love, earn us that hearing with people. Basically, what he's saying to Philemon is he says, you are the kind of person that knows the gospel and you walk in love towards others. And he's going to challenge him to relate to his slave Onesimus in a way that is consistent with how he already lives his life in his other relationships. And that's often our problem, isn't it? It's not that our hearts are not good and our intentions are not good. It's that we're inconsistent in how we apply the gospel. We can have little silos and little compartments in our life where, yes, this part of my life absolutely surrendered to God, absolutely shaped by the gospel, right? This vertical relationship shapes my horizontal relationships. And then we have this little portion of our life that we've siloed off, and there's not that connection. And, and we don't let the gospel affect this part of our life and our thinkings, and Paul is going to say, no, no, this needs to apply not just to your relationship with Christians of your same class and stature in society, it needs to apply to how you relate to the marginalized as well. And finally, we're going to end in verses 8 through 12. He says this, he says, accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. As we read these verses, I want to I'm going to give us a paradigm for thinking about communication that's going to help us read the Bible, and it's going to help us to skillfully relate to one another, okay? These verses illustrate really clearly the difference between facts, feelings, and commands, okay? Facts, feelings, and commands. These are three different ways that people talk to one another, right? And three different ways that the Bible speaks to us. And so when we're reading or we're listening to a person, we need to ask ourselves and discern, am I hearing a fact statement 
Am I hearing a feeling statement or am I feel, hearing a command? So here, here's a little example that I, I got from uh, Dr. Gary Bashirs, who's a, uh, a professor at Western, and he's kind of a pastor to pastors in the city, and he's been helpful to us as leaders here at CB. He shares this story to illustrate this principle. He says, just imagine yourself uh, or your family. Your, uh, your wife asks you to pick up some milk on the way home, okay? And you go off to work, you have a hard day at work, and you get home. And your wife's happy to see you, she greets you, gives you a kiss, and then says, where's the milk? Okay? Uh-oh, you realize you forgot the milk. Your wife had a hard day, too, with whatever she was doing. And she's angry. And she responds, I can never trust you. Fact or feeling? Hmm, I heard the ladies answer that question. It is a feeling statement. But if you guys understand that as a fact statement, things are going to get real messy real quick. Right? We need to discern what we are hearing. How do you respond to a fact statement? You ask, true or not true? How do you respond to a feeling statement? I care or I don't care. How do you respond to a command statement? Yeah, obey or not obey. If someone gives you a feeling statement and you respond to it like a fact statement, that's when the fight starts. Right? You always forget the milk. I can't trust you. If you respond with something like, but I brought it yesterday. Remember that thing last week I brought? Right? You got a fight going. You respond to a feeling statement by affirming that you care about the person and their feelings. <laughs> right? It makes a huge difference. And we see that here in how Paul communicates this very difficult issue to Philemon. Right? He says in verse 8, right? I am bold enough to command you in Christ. Fact or feeling? Does Paul have the authority to command Philemon? It's a fact. He does. He is Philemon's elder. He's an apostle. He has the authority. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Fact, feeling, or command? It's a feeling. It's a feeling. Paul is engaging at the heart level with Philemon. He's not pulling rank. He's not making a command. He is appealing to their relationship. And that's powerful. And then in verse 10, we finally hear Onesimus' name. He, fi we fi he finally appears. We, we know what the letter is about. And he says, Onesimus has become like a child to me in my imprisonment. I've become a father to him. Is that a fact or a feeling? It's a feeling. He's saying, this man has become dear to me. He's become dear to me. I love him. Right? He has become, he's useful. Right? He, formerly he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful to you and to me. Fact, feeling, or command? It's probably a, a, a fact. He's useful. He, he's a believer. He's, 
he's, he's, he has spiritual gifts. He can serve in the body. Then he says, I am sending him back to you. Fact or feeling or command? Fact. I'm sending him back to you. Sending my very heart. Feeling. You see, Paul eventually gets to the command. We'll get there next week. He gets to the command. But long before then, he connects with Philemon's heart. Think of how much better we would do communicating in our homes and in our families, at school, at work, and in, this, and in our church if we knew how to engage lovingly and skillfully at the heart level. Let me give you just one last example from my home in which God just totally floored me uh, earlier this year. I, I began to see that I had a pattern of relating to my daughters that was unhealthy. And, and they would be filled with emotion. Maybe it was sadness, or maybe it was anger. And they didn't know what to do with their feelings. They just felt them. And I, in my, emotional, in my own emotional unhealth, separated myself emotionally from their, the intensity of their emotion, right? Because I didn't want to get into that. I was, that, that. That was scary to me. And I would stay on the outside and judge the facts of the situation and judge the inappropriateness of their emotions. You are overreacting. You shouldn't be this sad over this situation. You shouldn't be this angry over this situation. And so they, they expressed feelings of emotion and feeling, and I responded with facts this, and judgment. This is wrong for you to feel this way. How well do you think that went over in our family? And, and I began to see, no, no, no. These are feeling statements. They, they are sharing their heart. And rather than being afraid to engage at a heart level with them, I need to engage with them where they are. Enter into that emotion and say, I understand. You don't know why you're feeling this way. You, you, you can't control this feeling, but it's real. It's there. Let me help you. Let me join you in it. And, and seek not to tell you why you're wrong, but that I care. That's what Paul's doing here. Do you see it? Before he's giving the command, he's saying, I care. In conclusion, we began this teaching saying that Philemon is this radical message, right, that breaks down class distinctions and subverts injustice, right? And we... And, and we just talked about pretty mundane things like family, verbal affirmation, and relating to people's feelings. Right? You might ask, how is that revolutionary? How does that break down and subvert injustice? Here it is. It is revolutionary because in this letter, Paul does not let gospel truth be separated from gospel action. And he does that in two ways. First, by calling Philemon to do the good works that are consistent with the shared faith that he confesses. And we'll, we'll dig into that a lot next week. And then second, and this is the main point from this, this message, is Paul actually embodies and demonstrates the shared faith of the gospel through how he speaks and what he does. 
The key verse here is verse 12. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. He is sending his heart to Philemon in the form of a fugitive runaway slave. That word heart, right, is this, the splagnizza. It's this really visceral uh, term that refers to the inward parts, the guts, the, the like, the deeply felt emotions. I'm sending you my, my, this is I'm, all my love, all of my affections. And then in verse 17 and 18, and we'll get there next week, he says, basically, receive Onesimus as you'd receive me. And anything he owes to you, charge that to my account. This is Paul embodying the gospel. Does that idea, charge that to my account, ring any bells? Have you read that anywhere else in the Bible? This is what God has done for us in Jesus. He sent Jesus to us. A man mocked and rejected. A man who died a criminal's death on the cross. But he was the very heart of God, right? It's, it's that depth of feeling. God sends Jesus. He sends his very heart and affection to us. And Jesus then, his heart gets broken. In Christ, the heart of God is broken, right? Some have said that Jesus died of a broken heart. I don't think that's too far from the truth. In Christ, we see the very heart and affection of God for us. And in a similar way that Paul serves as the substitute for the wrongs that Onesimus has done, the stolen goods need to get repaid, right? There needs to be justice for the wrongs done. And Paul makes himself the substitute for Onesimus, the criminal, right? And he says, when Onesimus shows up at your doorstep, don't see the criminal fugitive slave. See the righteous apostle when you look at him. In the same way, Jesus, the righteous one, takes our sin upon himself. And he, he counts us righteous in Christ so that we can return to God. Without being afraid of his wrath, without feeling ashamed for our sin, we can freely return knowing that we are loved and accepted as his children. This is the gospel. It's the good news that the Bible proclaims to each of us. And it's the radical message of Philemon. That this gospel isn't just to be believed, but to be embodied. We are called to be like Christ, laying down our lives and our privilege for the sake of the voiceless and the marginalized. That's radical. Let's pray. Jesus, you you came to us as uh, as a man that Isaiah says that uh, there was nothing beautiful in you that we would desire. You died a criminal's death on the cross. But as we see that, we know that that you were the very heart and affection of God sent to us. And 
you took upon yourself uh, our sin. You said, count it to my account. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And, and that is the gospel that we, we sing about, that we celebrate, that we take communion and we remember. And, and yet we ask, God, that, you, that you, you not let it just be something that we think about or talk about with our words, but we would embody it. And that where there are parts of our lives that the implications of that gospel haven't broken into, I, I pray that like just like a mighty rushing flood that breaks through the wall, that you would, you would break apart those areas of our life that we, have, that we have walled off from you. And we open ourselves and welcome you, Holy Spirit, to come and search us and know us and find if there's any untrue way in us. Come and, and draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you as we respond in worship to celebrate this gospel that has set us free and to confess your sin to God and, and then receive his gift of righteousness and forgiveness and take communion and remember that his body was broken, his blood was shed for you and for me so that we could, like the prodigal son, run home with confidence. So do that this morning. desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.